You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. It's been a wonderful day and we trust it will continue to be so as we open up God's word to John chapter 11. We just happen to be in this amazing passage in John 11 today. There was an old show in the 80s, the A-Team. They would say, I love it when a plan comes together. And this plan was something God did. I didn't plan this, but in his sweet providence, we're here in John chapter 11. If you would look with me to get the essence of the passage, we're going to be looking from verses 17 to, to 44, but the Heart of the passage, if you would look with me in verse 25. Jesus said to her, that is Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And here's the question. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we are gathered as a people who largely believe this. But we are like the man in Mark 9. We believe, but Lord, help our unbelief. But there may be some here today who do not yet believe this. And yet in your providence, they're here today for this passage. That's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's by divine providence. And I pray by the end of this day, they would believe this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Randolph Wicker has long been the spokesman for the Human Cloning Foundation. He says, if I'm not cloned before I die, my estate will be set up so that I can be cloned after. So Randolph identifies as a a gay man. And he's long been frustrated that he cannot readily have biological children of his own. And as he ages, his desire to reproduce has increased and grown stronger. He believes that humans, get this, have the right to bear one's later born identical twin a later born identical twin, and he believes this is a human rights issue. He envisions the traits that his clone would have. He will like the color blue, Middle Eastern food, and romantic Spanish music that's out of fashion. But then he reveals his motive, and I think it's quite telling. I can thumb my nose at Mr. Death and say, you might get me, but you're not going to get all of me. 
The special formula that is me will live on into another lifetime. It's a partial triumph over death. That's his solution to death, human cloning. When Adam and Eve believed Satan's lie, and this was the first lie in the Bible, you shall surely not die. And they, as a result, ate the forbidden fruit, rejecting the authority of God for self-autonomy. Death entered the world then and there. And ever since then, every human being born in Adam, and that's all of us, intuitively know with the psalmist in Psalm 89, verse 48, what man can live and never see death. As a result, we are naturally enslaved to the fear of death. That's what Hebrews 2.15 says. And one of the biggest evidences of that is we don't like to think about death. We don't like to talk about death. Rather, our natural tendency, and I say natural tendency, is to build our lives around things that will distract us from death that ironically are not good enough to stand up to death themselves. But because of the very real presence of death, no one can deny that. It's appointed unto man once to die. Because of the very real presence of death, because of the very real fear of death, one of the most important realities of Christianity is the stark, and I mean stark, contrast that it presents between the hope that we find in the resurrected Christ and the fact that outside of this resurrected Christ, there is no hope. Mike Horton aptly says, in spite of appearances, Everything outside of Christ is dead. And everything in Christ is alive. That's a good word. Mary and Martha intuitively knew that. They knew that. Indeed, as we saw last week, because they knew that, even though there was no way for them to fully understand all that Jesus was going to reveal to them. And there was no way to understand all that he had come to do at that point in time in redemptive history. They knew enough to send to him because their beloved brother Lazarus was sick. Why? Well, they knew, as we're going to see in this great confession we read in this passage, that he was Lord. He is Lord. And they knew that he was a mighty worker of miracles and signs. And perhaps more important than anything, they knew, as we saw in verse 3, that he loved Lazarus. He loved Lazarus. And yet, as we saw last week in the first 16 verses of John chapter 11, John, uh, Jesus confounds them because he demonstrates his love by staying where he was for two days after hearing 
that Lazarus was deathly sick. And that brings us to the first part of our passage, starting in verse 17 uh, this morning. Jesus displays his love by revealing who he is. That's one of the great graces of our Lord when he reveals himself to us. Jesus displays his love by revealing who he is, the resurrection and the life. Look with me in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, so again, uh, Lazarus is sick, he's deathly sick, and Jesus has remained where he was for two days, but now he hears, we've already heard, that Lazarus had died, verse 14. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So why did Jesus delay? If Jesus had set out to Bethany of Judea, which was two miles outside of Jerusalem, immediately when he heard the news, Lazarus would have still been dead when he got there. Because here it says he'd been dead four days, and he waited two days before he came. In fact, he could have still performed the miracle. If he had waited, just if he had gone immediately. In that case, Lazarus would have been dead only two days, and it would have saved Mary and Martha, who the text tells us that Jesus loved them as well. It would have saved them two days of grief and heartache if he had gone immediately. But the delay has something to do with something that may be strange to us. Greg touched on it this morning. But it was a very real thing in the first century. And it was this. In Jewish tradition, really it was superstition, the idea was that when you die, your spirit would hover over your corpse for up to three days. And then if there's no resuscitation to the corpse over those three days, then death is considered irreversible. Did Jesus hold that? Of course he didn't. But he knew that was the prevailing superstition. It was tradition. And so Jesus delayed so that when he does this mighty work, there would have been no other explanation. Well, notice in verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem. Now, Jesus and his disciples were in Bethany of Galilee in the northern country. It's safe there. It's not safe here. He was, uh, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. This is the same Mary and Martha we read about in Luke chapter 10, where Mary is seated at the, the feet of Jesus, soaking in Jesus, meditating on Jesus, and Martha is busy uh, with many things, and she receives a, a rebuke from Jesus. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here... Now, I don't know if this is a rebuke. I don't... I, I tend to think it was a frustration. 
And let me just say, we can see ourselves with Martha here because there's not a person here that's never been frustrated with our Lord. And she's frustrated. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, here's the problem. She is clearly forgetting, or perhaps she doesn't know, that Jesus' divine power is not limited by proximity. That's important for us to remember as well. I mean, Jesus is with us by spirit, but his physical body's not with us, right? But his power is not limited by proximity. He's just as powerful today, seated at the right hand of the Father, as he was when he was walking the earth. Indeed, earlier in the Gospel of John, in the second sign miracle, an official approached him about his son, uh, who was dying. And in and, and John chapter 4, verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Jesus had, didn't have to go to heal the son. He could just speak the word. And so what we learn from these accounts, and this is important for those of us who are called, right? And all of us are called to evangelize. Jesus' word is as powerful as his bodily presence. If we believe that, I think we would evangelize more often. Because when you speak the gospel, you're speaking the word of Christ, and his word is as powerful as his bodily presence. Well, it's as if Martha here overhears herself, and it sounds like she's blaming Jesus, and so she adds in verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She says to Jesus, verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha is an Orthodox Jew. She believed what we know as the Old Testament, and she knows from the Old Testament that it promises a future resurrection for God's people. Let me just give you one of many examples. It's one of my favorite examples. Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. After two days, now keep in mind, Hosea is preaching to the northern kingdom, which was apostate from the beginning. They don't deserve any hope. They don't deserve any gospel encouragement. But in Hosea 6, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. That's one of the great prophetic hopes of the Old Testament, a future resurrection. On the third day, we will be raised up. But then Jesus introduces a twist, you might say, into the conversation. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am. 
I love that. Don't, don't lose those two words. He's identifying as the Lord who revealed himself to Moses. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That is, though he die a physical death, yet shall he live because physical death is not ultimate for the believer. And then it says, verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And here's the question. Do you believe this? So this is the fifth I am statement. I am's with a predicate. I mean, there's another statement in John 8, 58 where he says, and boy, this set them off, before Abraham was, I am. But we've seen throughout John these great I am statements. For instance, in, in John chapter 6, uh, he says, I am the bread of life. In, in John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the door. That is, he's the door to heaven, the door to the Father, the only door. And I am the good shepherd. And here we see this fifth I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. And yet, this statement is not altogether clear as to what it means. I mean, if he said, I offer resurrection and life, I mean, that makes more sense. But he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Maybe this helps, this analogy. Heather and I spent 19 years in Kentucky, and I would often say I was born to love Alabama, and I grew to love Kentucky. But one of the reasons, one of the ways I knew I had come to grow to love Kentucky was that I would go to other places in the world, overseas, and I would see a KFC. It's weird, isn't it? And I would swell up with pride. Like I had something to do with that. I wasn't even born in Kentucky, and here I'm prideful that uh, there's a KFC there. Okay, so Harlan Sanders died in 1980. But for those of you who are as old as I am, uh, you remember that you couldn't turn on the television in the 70s without seeing this white-haired, white-goateed man who's talking about uh, these 11 secret herbs and spices. Now, uh, you hear that, you've got to go uh, find out what he's talking about. Not only are they secret, and they're, uh, they're finger-licking good, <laughs> right? And so he was the face of TV commercials in the 70s. You couldn't watch a ball game without seeing... Colonel Sanders. Now, it would have been conceivable in those days had they run a commercial for him to say, I am KFC. And everyone would have understood what he's talking about. He wouldn't have been saying, I am this chicken that's been fried up in these 11 herbs and spices. That's, that's not what he'd been, he would have meant. And, and we would have known that. We would have known that he meant that he was so identified 
with Kentucky Fried Chicken that apart from him, there is no Kentucky Fried Chicken. There is no finger-licking good chicken. I am KFC. Jesus is saying something remarkable here. He is saying, I am the exclusive provider of resurrection and life. Apart from me, there is no resurrection. There is no life. And then he asked that question that we must ask ourselves. Do you believe this? That is the question. Do you believe this? Most of us do. And so as we answer the, the question, yes, by grace, I believe this. We should also pray, Lord, I want to believe it more. And I want that stronger, deeper faith to transform my life even more. But for those of you who have not trusted in Jesus, you need to cry out this morning and say, no, I don't, but I want to believe. And ask God for the gift of saving faith. Well, notice in verse 27, she said to him, and this is the only right answer. Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Is there any greater confession anywhere in the Scripture? Perhaps the Apostle Peter in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But notice, you are Lord, you are Christ, you are the Son of God. You are the one who is coming into the world. That language is... The language of fulfilled prophecy. We've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. You are the one who is coming into the world as our Lord, as our Christ, as the Son of God. As Lord, He is the agent of creation. He is the agent of the new creation. He has all authority and we stand under him and are accountable to him. Even if you are a card-carrying atheist, you are accountable to this Lord. As the Christ, he is our last days prophet, priest, and king. As our prophet, he reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. As our priest... Later on in John, we're going to see he's going to offer up himself as a sacrifice to satisfy God's divine justice that we might be reconciled to God and he will make continual intercession for his people as our priest. And as our king, he will subdue us to himself. He will rule over us and he will restrain and conquer all of his and our enemies. That's who he is, is the Christ. And he is the son of God. He is the true and faithful son of God. We were born in Adam, the unfaithful son of God. This is the true son of God, our substitute, our savior. But even with this amazing confession, Mary still believes it's too late for Jesus. We'll see that later on in the passage. 
And that brings us to the second part of this passage. We've already seen that Jesus displays his love by revealing who he is as the resurrection and the life. In the last part of this passage, he displays his love by revealing what he does. Raising the dead. Raising the dead to life. Look with me in verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here. I love that. The teacher is here. He is our teacher. That's why we need to sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ every day. Why do we need a teacher? Because we are dumb and foolish. We need a teacher. The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, this is the one who's, who just loves to sit at the feet of Jesus. Imagine being told, he's calling for you. She rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary has found this Mary. This is not Jesus' mother. This is another Mary. She's found three times in the Gospels. And in all three accounts, Luke 10, we're going to see it in John 12, so I'm not going to expound on that anymore here. But here, John 12 and Luke 10, all three places, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. We have so many Marys here at Lakeview, and may God continue to increase the Marys. And interestingly, these are her only recorded words. And when she speaks, she's just repeating what Martha had already said. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and I love that language as well, Jesus is very aware of our grief. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. It's probably not a good translation. You may have a footnote there uh, that reads indignant. Other uh, translations, scholars tell us, are Better translated, outraged. He's outraged. He's not outraged at them, but he's outraged in his spirit and greatly troubled. The object of his outrage certainly is the death of Lazarus, but he's going to raise Lazarus. It's something much more comprehensive than that. His outrage is at death itself. This is not the way things are supposed to be. Death entered the world because we rebelled against our creator. And the consequences of sin is death because a good judge has to penalize crimes. He is outraged at death. And beyond this, we see in his outrage, 
He is identifying with broken and fallen humanity. That's why he came. Well, verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And in the shortest verse in the Bible, but perhaps one of the longest to contemplate, Jesus wept. It is the shortest verse in the Bible, but it sure gives us a long glimpse into the heart of our Savior. Why was he outraged? Why did he weep? It wasn't because he was powerless. It wasn't because he was impotent. He was moments away from the greatest miracle in history up to that point. Remember the context. He sees Mary and Martha weeping, and he sees all these people mourning, and he is outraged at death itself. Death is an ugly enemy. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15. It's an enemy. Death is an enemy. But it doesn't have the last word. You know, I was thinking about that this week when I wrote that sentence in my manuscript. Death is an enemy that doesn't have the last word. And I thought about that tension of that statement. And I was reminded of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And in Philippians 2, he's speaking about his brother, his co-laborer in the faith, Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus was sick to the point of death. And here's what Paul writes in Philippians 2.27. He was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Do you see that? God healed Epaphroditus, and if he hadn't have healed Epaphroditus, Paul the great apostle, he would not have over-spiritualized that death. Well, God's in control. You'll see him again. He would have had sorrow upon uh, sorrow. Why? Death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. That's Philippians 2. But just a few verses earlier, in Philippians 1, for to me to live is Christ... And to die is gain. Do you see the tension? Death is an enemy, but Paul says he knows it does not have the last word. The only one grieving in death are those who are left behind. Those who are in Christ, they die. To die is gain. But if the gospel ended here, Jesus wept. We would all love Jesus for his tears. We would respect a man with this kind of compassion, right? We love people who have compassion for others. We would love us some Jesus for weeping, but we would be left without hope. And that's clearly how the Jews saw things. Notice in verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? They respect his tears. 
He, he is a compassionate man. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So the Jews here were both right and wrong in their response. They were right in the sense that, yes, Jesus loved Lazarus. See how he loved him. He loved him so much that he left Bethany of Galilee and traveled 100 miles. And that's a long trip on a car. He traveled 100 miles. And not only did he travel 100 miles, he brought himself back into the middle of the heat. He's now in Judea where they're wanting to kill him, where they want to stone him. So they're right about that. But here was where they were wrong. They were drawing their conclusions about Jesus merely from his tears. Without understanding that Jesus is the door out of the vortex of the darkness of death. He is the door out of that vortex. Notice in verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again. Again, there's that same word that could be translated outraged, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. So here you have this picture of this warrior king engaging one of our greatest enemies. Outside of our own sin, death is our greatest enemy. And he's engaging and he's taking it on one-on-one. The one sent by the Father entering the human condition. In verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Now I find that interesting. I think there's an there's a, uh, application point here for us. Take away the stone. He, he's about to raise a man Uh, a corpse from the dead, he could have spoken that stone out of the way, but he uses human agency. We play roles, right, in what God is doing in Jesus Christ. So he says, take away the stone. Well, notice in the second part of verse 39, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, And we we recognize ourselves in Martha because sometimes we feel like we have to explain our situation to Jesus because we think he just doesn't quite get it yet. Lord, by this time, there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Note the order. You believe, then you see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, here's a prayer here. I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. How comforting is that? Because he ever lives to make intercession for us, by the way. and, And the Father always hears his prayers. He is praying for you right now if you're a believer. And the Father always hears his prayers. And his prayers are much stronger and much holier than your prayers. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. How important is belief? It is a matter of eternal life and death. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now this is a miracle in time and space. It happened in time and space. But this is also a coming attraction. This is a coming attraction for every single individual who believes. Verse 44, the man who had died four days ago came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This life from the dead, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, is a picture of every single believer's conversion. Paul even, I think, contemplates this passage when he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work in those who are the sons of disobedience. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. That was the fruit. That was the stench of our spiritual death. That was us. He's not referring there to physical death. He, that's spiritual death. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, made us alive even when we were dead. On August 29, 1991, Jesus came to my tomb and said, Brian, come out. And that testimony could be multiplied by the hundreds in this room this morning. And not to be missed as we close here, the crucial role this narrative plays in getting Jesus to Jerusalem because it's Passover time. And when Jesus comes to Judea, he will be there in Jerusalem to kick off Passion Week. The week that will take him to Golgotha. Isn't it remarkable how God's providence worked there? Lazarus is dying. He dies. And he's at the very place where Jesus will need to be to kick off the Passover week, which will usher into the cross Indeed, this language we've read throughout this passage of this dead man is the same Greek terminology 
to refer to Jesus in John 19. This is establishing a a, a connection, a parallel between the death of Lazarus and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Lazarus' feet and hands were wrapped with strips of linen. And as we'll see in John 20, uh, it's the same language that was used when they prepared Jesus for burial. Lazarus' emergence from the tomb anticipates, yes, our emergence, but first, the emergence of the ground of our resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus himself. Like Lazarus, Jesus too will be raised from the dead and his tomb will be as empty as Lazarus' tomb. But here's the difference. Jesus was raised with a transformed body. Lazarus would die again. Jesus' body would be transformed and he would never taste death again. And that is the ground of our hope. It's the ground of our hope. Death in the resurrection of Jesus has been destroyed. Eternal death, the second death has been destroyed. And one day when he returns, physical death will be destroyed as well. Why? Because in the resurrection, the son is vindicated for our sins. On the cross, he was treated as if he had committed all of our sins. He was treated as if he had lived our life. Our sin was imputed to him. And so he died the cursed death on the cross in our sins. And in the resurrection, God vindicated him. And for everyone who trusts in him, we receive the same vindication. Justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's why B.B. Warfield is so eloquent when he says, whatever death is, and all that death is, that is what we shall be saved from in this salvation. And whatever life is, and all that life is, that is what we shall be saved to in this salvation. And again, on this Easter afternoon now, The question is, do you believe this? And let me just imagine as we close for a moment what this did to to Lazarus after he was raised. One apologist put it this way. Have you ever wondered what you would do to frighten Lazarus after he'd been raised from the dead? What would you do to threaten him? Lazarus? I'm going to kill you. Caligula, the the emperor, says to him, I'm going to kill you. And Lazarus says, ha, ha, ha. 
Caligula says, stop ha-ha-haing. I'm going to kill you as I'm killing all the Christians. And Lazarus doubles over in uncontrollable laughter and says, haven't you heard? Death is dead. Death is dead. That's the gospel for all who believe. Let's pray. Death is dead. For those who've been raised with Christ, and Lord, if we have been raised with Christ, we are to seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of you, the Father. We're to set our mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For we have died in Christ, and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Thank you for that glorious hope this morning. And Lord, I recognize, though, there's some that can't say that. Death is not dead for them. But it can be. And I pray today by the Holy Spirit, they would flee to Christ, the sphere of resurrection, and find in him their living hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Adam and the musicians come forward, death is dead. But in an ironic sense, it's very much alive. Turn on the news. Look to see where the culture is headed. Death looks to be reigning. And it is for a time, but it's like the proverbial chicken that's had his head cut off, but he doesn't know he's dead, so he flops around. But do you want to, to give your one life to that when it's already had its head crushed? There's only one life you have. You need to give it to the one who has put death to death. Won't you come to Jesus this morning as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.